Cataclysm, the quest for the Holy Grail of Perfection by the Knights. It also, as Schlesinger pointed out, featured treachery, Arthur's nephew Mordred seizing his kingdom and taking the queen captive, and adultery, the love affair of Guinevere and Arthur's valiant knight, Sir Lancelot. But Jackie Kennedy never backed away from Camelot. What she wanted to convey was the magic of her husband's presidency, an interlude marked by grand intentions, soaring rhetoric, and high style. At the end of January 1964, in a letter to former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, she conceded that Camelot was overly sentimental, but maintained it was right, because those 1,007 days had been a brief shining moment that would not be repeated. Two years after the assassination, in A Thousand Days, John F. Kennedy in the White House, the book that set the template for the Kennedy years, Schlesinger himself described the periods life-affirming, life-enhancing zest, the brilliance, the wit, the cool commitment, the steady purpose. It was a view that remained undimmed for him, and for many others, despite forty years of tawdry revelations about JFK's reckless womanizing and his administration's decision to enlist the mob to assassinate Fidel Castro. The picture of the Kennedy White House has been blurred by this competition between the Camelot mythology and the powerful impulse to tear it down. Thousands of books, articles, and television documentaries have created a funhouse mirror in which reflections of the Kennedys jump cut from clarity to distortion. Hopes had been so high, the romance so strong, and the tragedy so great that the everyday reality of the Kennedy White House seemed insufficiently dramatic. Because Jack and Jackie were such magnetic stars, their supporting players and their complex interactions with the Kennedys were often overlooked or given short shrift. But with the passage of time, emotions have softened, and members of the Kennedy Circle, including many who have never spoken publicly before, discuss their years in the limelight with detachment and a sense of perspective. Fresh insights were also drawn from previously unavailable letters and personal papers. The story that emerges, recounted in this audiobook, is more compelling than the Kennedy mythologies. It is a story of people selected by history, some with extraordinary talents, others blessed with the gift of loyalty, struggling to guide the United States through perilous times, even as they wrestled with their own frailties and the temptations of power. From the remove of four decades, the Kennedy White House emerges not as a model of enlightened government, nor as a series of dark conspiracies, but rather as a deeply human place. Where's Jackie? asked Jack Kennedy looking around his Hyannisport home the day after his election as President of the United States. A dozen family members were organizing themselves for the formal victory photograph, but his wife had disappeared. Wearing low-heeled shoes and a raincoat with a green-knitted cow collar to ward off the early November chill, Jackie had gone for a solitary walk on the beach. Kennedy headed out across the grassy dunes to retrieve her. When the couple finally arrived in his parents' living room, the family hailed them with a round of applause. It was a moment that captured the contrasting personalities of the 43-year-old president-elect and his 31-year-old wife. On election day, the Kennedy clan had gathered at the compound on the shore of Nantucket Sound, the family's nerve center for 35 years. Throughout the day and into the night, as the returns fluctuated between hopeful and nail-biting, Jackie had strayed away from the commotion, keeping track of the results from her cheery white and yellow living room, with its chintz sofas, hooked rugs, Staffordshire lamps, heaps of patterned pillows, 
Jack, however, had restlessly shuttled among the three Kennedy homes, the cozy three-bedroom cottage he shared with Jackie, the home of campaign manager Bobby across the lawn that was a communications hub of news tickers and banks of telephones, and his father's seventeen-room white clabbered house, with its wide veranda and commanding ocean views. Besides his immediate family, Kennedy had sought information, reassurance, and amusement from the close aides and friends stationed in various places. The Irish Mafia, Kenny O'Donnell, Larry O'Brien, and Dave Powers, along with Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's shadow for nearly four years of campaigning, shared the candidate's anxiety as he paced about, his ever-fidgety right hand tapping his teeth or drumming tabletops. His childhood friend Lem Billings, a guest of Joe and Rose Kennedy, knew how to break the tension. Lem's mock weeping drew a wisecrack from JFK. He's lost another state. His record is still minus 100%. He's lost every county and every state of which he was supposed to be in charge. The Washington artist Bill Walton had stayed over at JFK's house to keep Jackie company after a quiet dinner in their red-carpeted dining room. The closest to Jackie among JFK's intimates, Walton diverted her by talking about painting. When the returns looked promising at 10.30 p.m., Jackie turned to her husband, using her pet name for him. Oh, Bunny, you're president now. No, he replied. It's too early yet. Jackie went to bed before midnight. She was nearly eight months pregnant and dared not risk harming the baby by overextending herself. She had already lost two babies, one in 1954 after their first year of marriage. A daughter arrived stillborn in 1956, the result, Jackie's doctors said, of the heat and crowds at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. She had borne another daughter, Caroline, in November 1957, after months of self-imposed rest and relaxation. Once again, she was taking no chances. She had awakened when Jack turned in at 4 a.m., and he told her the outcome remained uncertain, but he was optimistic. As they both slept, Secret Service agents quietly infiltrated and secured the property. Seated on his bed in white pajamas at 9.30 the next morning, Kennedy learned from Sorensen that he had won. He emerged after breakfast to stroll along the beach, accompanied by a swarm of siblings and friends. An hour later, as family members tossed a football around on the front lawn, it was Jackie's turn to walk, and she, typically, slipped out of the house alone, unnoticed by her husband. That afternoon, they stood together on the platform at the Hyannis Armory, as beautiful a couple as had ever entered the presidency. At six feet and 165 pounds, Kennedy looked bronzed and vibrant, with broad shoulders and a trim waist. His thick chestnut hair, a source of vanity pampered by secretaries who routinely administered scalp massages, was carefully combed, his heavy-lidded gray eyes cool and impenetrable. His warmth and magnetism came entirely from his gleaming, high-wattage smile. Jackie, on the other hand, telegraphed every emotion through her extraordinary eyes. Large hazel orbs fringed with black lashes, so melting that a Cape Cod reporter once wrote that it would be unendurable, indeed actually impossible, to write anything uncomplimentary about anyone with such eyes. Her face was square and unusually photogenic, framed by dark brown hair teased high in a style that gave her the look of a beautiful lion. Her eyes, she once wrote, were set unfortunately far apart, and she had full dark brows, porcelain skin, a slightly pudgy nose, and a supple mouth above a strong chin. In deference to her pregnancy, 
she wore a bouffant purple coat. Ordinarily, at five foot seven, she had the slender figure of a mannequin. In different ways, Jack and Jackie had been preparing for this moment for years. They had taught each other a great deal, held the same ambitions, and looked forward to recasting their respective roles in the White House. They were both bright, inquisitive, and bookish, with enviably retentive memories. Each had a quick, ironic wit that sprang from high intelligence. The new first couple shared the Catholic faith and came of age in a similarly wealthy and rarefied world. She in Manhattan, Paris, East Hampton, Newport, and Washington. He in Bronxville, London, Palm Beach, Hyannis, and the French Riviera. Jackie had the additional gloss of high wasp society through her mother's second marriage to Hugh D. Auchincloss II, a stockbroker from a venerable family. Jack and Jackie could each boast extensive travels as well. Jack had spent time in the Middle East and Asia, and had summered in Europe nearly every year since his adolescence. By her twenty-fourth birthday, Jackie had made five European trips. They had comparable academic pedigrees as well: Choate and Harvard, Miss Porter's and Vassar. The coat of arms for this administration, quipped Jackie, should be a daisy chain on a field of crimson. She had broken an engagement to John Husted, a New York stockbroker with a proper social pedigree, after she began seeing Jack Kennedy. All I ask is someone with a little imagination, but they are hard to find. She had told her sister Lee a year before her first evening with JFK. It is having an open mind that counts. Their Newport wedding in September 1953 was a political and social extravaganza with 1,400 guests. But the marriage had nearly fractured in its first few years, as Jackie endured the.